Genesis 18 as we continue our series. And if you just reminisce in your mind, it's not that long ago that we were in the Garden of Eden. Not that long ago that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And there's been this unfolding plan. It's very clear. It's very obvious to those who read the Bible carefully, starting with verse 1 of Genesis. It's not hard to understand. It's really not hard to follow. And it's not hard to find out and understand why we're at the place that we're at. Uh, looking back that God chose out a family because man is so hopeless and sinful that he just keeps falling backward. Destroyed the world with a flood and now it's back again. And so there needed to be a redeemer. And for the foundations of the earth, God knew this. And so he picked out a family, and out of that family he picked out a man. That man will be the father of the faithful. And we pick up in chapter 18, in verse 1, these words, and the Lord, you might want to circle that for a moment. You'll notice it's all capitals, it's Jehovah God. And the Lord appeared unto him, that's Abraham, in the plains of Mamre, and he sat in the tent door in the heat of the day. And he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Father, please help us tonight. Our minds, our hearts, Lord, we need the light of your word. We need the truth of the word of God. And I pray you'll help us hear it and then heed it as well. We know, Lord, that the entrance of thy words giveth light. And without it, there's darkness. And I pray you'll speak to us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 25, 14 says this. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he will show them his covenant. Now think about that promise again for a moment. The secret of the Lord is with them that fear him, and he, God, will show them his covenant. That simply means that there are things that you will never understand. There are things, the secret of the Lord, there are things that are behind the veil, understood by those, those who only fear the Lord and walk with Him. Well, Genesis 18 is sort of the foundation, if you will, of that entire spiritual truth. And of course, Genesis 18 should really never be studied, I don't even think read, without Genesis 19. Because the one is the introduction to the other. So that what happens to Abraham in Genesis 18 is contrasted with what happened to Lot and happens to Lot in Genesis 19. Let's just read verse 1 again of chapter 18. It says, And the Lord, that's God, appeared unto him in the plains of Mamre. And he, Abraham, sat in the tent door in the heat of the day, and he lifted up his eyes and looked, and lo, three men stood by him. And when he saw them, he ran to meet them from the tent door and bowed himself toward the ground. Now, of course, you can picture this, right? Just in your mind's eye, think about it for a moment. Here's a man. The Bible says it's high noon. The heat of the day is the high noon in the Middle East. And like all sensible men at that time of the day, in that place, in that kind of heat, he's shading himself. He's shading himself in the doorway of his tent. Hopefully, he is enjoying whatever breeze might blow his way. So for Abraham, at the moment, at the time, this is normal, everyday life. We said last week, he's just a man going through life just like you and just like me. And he's resting, and he's sitting there, and all of a sudden, unlike just like you and just like me all the time, the Bible says that he sort of rubs his eyes and he sees these, these men. He sees something that is totally out of the ordinary. 
Three men, the Bible says, in the midst of all this heat are walking, and they're coming towards him. For Abraham, they look like ordinary men until they get a little bit closer and he gets closer to them, at which time Abraham realizes that obviously this is royalty, a royalty approaching his tent door. Look at the last part of verse 2. He says, Abraham bowed himself toward the ground and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in thy sight, pass not away, don't leave, I pray thee, from thy servant. Let a little water, I pray, or I ask you, be fetched and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will fetch a morsel of bread and comfort ye your hearts. After that you shall pass on, for therefore you come to your servant. And they said, So do as thou hast said. And Abraham hastened unto the tent, into the tent unto Sarah and said, Make ready quickly three measures of fine meal, knead it, and make cakes upon the hearth. And Abraham ran unto the herd and fetched a calf, tender and good, and gave it unto a young man, to, and he hastened to dress it. And he took butter and milk and the calf which he had dressed and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree, and they did eat. All right? Understand that this is not just some interesting detail. Please understand that God has given us his word to show us this unfolding plan of, God, of God's redemption leading to this very night. Here in the heat of the day is a man who's nearly 100 years of age. Keep that in mind. The Bible says he's running. He's bowing down. He's hastening. He's serving. I will never forget Brother Howard Wynn's admonition when I was a young preacher about Abraham at 100 years of age being full of zeal and moving and doing and acting. And I thank you, Brother Howard, for being faithful, Lord, in, in expositing that to my heart many, many years ago. So what does Abraham say? He says, Sarah, quickly make some homemade bread, use the fine meal. And then the Bible says that Abraham himself, it says he himself picks out the best calf. And then it says he himself, Abraham, takes the butter and the milk and he dresses the table and he sets the meal before them. You think about that for just a moment. He has 300 servants, as we learned last week. But Abraham personally takes part in serving these guests. And the main reason is that he knows that they're not just ordinary guests. Have you ever noticed this hospitality in the Middle East? The Middle East is known, probably more than anywhere in the world, for the great hospitality. You can go from Jordan to Syria to Egypt, uh, all over the, that area. They're known for that. Part of it goes right back to this example of Abraham. Now you can mark it down, 100-year-old man running in the heat of the day, bowing down, serving his best calf. There was more to this than meets the eye. And there was. Scroll down to verse 16. We'll come back in a moment. And the men rose up from thence and looked towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to bring them on the way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham that thing which I do? Aha, you see that, right? Genesis 18 really is the precursor to Genesis 19. Why? Because these guests did not come to Abraham's tent to enjoy a meal. This wasn't about fellowship at all. Look at verse 20. And the Lord said, Because the cry of Sodom and Gomorrah is great, 
and because their sin is very grievous. Let me stop here for a minute. You may remember that when God, just before this, when God uh, destroyed the earth with a flood, the Bible says that their violence was great, right? The cry that comes up from here is the result of the violence, which is the result of the sin. One always leads to the other. Look at verse 21. I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it which has come unto me, and if not, I will know. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. Now that sounds, when it says, the men went, but Abraham yet stood with the Lord, it sounds like two of the men left to go to Sodom, implying that the third was the Lord. The Lord himself Another Christophany. Well, sure enough, look at chapter 19, verse 1. And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate at Sodom. Well, the meal was at noon. Now it says here, that is, read chapter 19, verse 1, And there came two angels to Sodom at even, and Lot sat in the gate at Sodom, and Lot, seeing them, rose up to meet them, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So the meal was at noon. Now it is even, that's sunset. And now, beloved, you're going to see how Abraham, the man of the noonday light, is set in great contrast with Lot, the man who fellowshiped with darkness. In fact, let me show you one of my favorite verses in all of the Bible. Remember what God said? He said, shall I keep from Abraham the secret? Shall I keep from this man the secret of the Lord? Can I trust him with a secret? Well, go back to chapter 18. Here's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. God says, for I know him. I know this man. What do you know about him? That he will command his children and his household after him. And they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment that the Lord may bring upon Abraham that which he has spoken of him. Folks, think about that for a minute. God said, I know Abraham, and the first thing I know is that he will command his children and his family in the way of the Lord. Abraham is a man who's going to teach his children and his grandchildren, yea, his entire household, employees, servants, all of them. Abraham is going to command them to follow the Lord. In other words, Abraham wasn't the kind of man who just suggested or who hinted to his household that they could could follow the Lord, the kind of family that they were going to have. When it came to spiritual matters, it wasn't a democracy where all the kids got a vote. The children or the grandchildren, they didn't get to vote as to whether or not they're going to go to church. It was more like Joshua who said, as for me and my house, we will, we will serve the Lord. Apparently, God likes that kind of commitment. Say, well, pastor, I just think that when it comes to religion, you have to let your children choose for themselves. Really? Did you let your children do that growing up when it came to what they were going to eat? Did you let your children choose when and if and ever to take a bath? Did you let them choose bedtime for themselves? Did they choose what to watch or, or when to watch television? Did they choose if they go to school every day? I remember a man in Tennessee when I was a youth pastor. He said to me, I make my kids go to school. I'll never make them go to Sunday school. Really? 
You can't, he said, you can't cram religion down a little boy's throat, it'll ruin him. Well, religion would. But do you cram bedtime and bathing down their throat? Did you cram getting up and going to school down their throat? You have teenage girl. You want her to drive the car at 90 miles an hour? Go. 90, 120, doesn't matter. Isn't that cramming driving rules down her throat? Since when was driving more important than her soul? This is the attitude. When God looked down, he says, I know this man. And I know he will command his children after him. But there's something else. Because in addition to commanding them, the Bible says he did something in addition. Look at verse 19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him. If you know the grammatical context here, you know that the words after him means that he practiced what he preached. He didn't just command them. He told them while he showed them. See, for some people, what they say doesn't match what they do. In other words, either they don't command them, and they do have the example. I'm going to go, and hopefully they'll just do it. Or they do command them, and they don't have the example. The first attitude is dangerous, and the second attitude is deadly. If you want to have a son like Abraham's son Isaac, then do as Abraham did. Be a parent, be a leader, be a grandparent that speaks with authority while practicing exactly what you preach. Hypocrisy is the death knell of influence. And you know what? If there's one thing you can count on, it is that your children are watching you and they can spot hypocrisy a billion miles away. You can also count on this. They are imitators from birth. I remember years ago, many years ago, Louise had her keyboard out and she was in the family room playing some hymns and stuff and we were all kind of singing along and eight-year-old Ricky said, let's play church. I'll be Desmond and Andy, you're going to be the preacher and mommy, you'll be the piano player and daddy, you're going to be the audience. And so I was the audience. I had to say amen and stuff. And so Rick sort of led in a song took an offering. He's a Baptist after all. <laughs> Louise played the offertory. It was kind of fun. Then it was Andy's turn. And he walked up to our trash can, our wooden trash can, which was the pulpit. I don't even know if he remembers this. And he took his fist and he pounded it and he said, Beloved, listen to me. <laughs> and then he sat down. And Louise and I looked at her like four words. That was it. And he said, Ricky, he pointed at Rick, give the invitation. It was four words, but I got to tell you, it spoke volumes to me. He was a little guy. Beloved, listen to me. Look at verse 22. And the men turned their faces from thence and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood yet before the Lord. There's that third angel. And Abraham drew near and said, drew near to who? To the Lord. Wilt thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? You do know, beloved, that if Abraham, now this, this city, the cities of Sodom, you do know that if he were to go to the city fathers that day and say, hey, give me a report about your city, they would have said, this, this place is awesome. This is the happening place. The professors there would have bragged on their education. The businessmen would have bragged on their agriculture. 
The builders would have looked around and bragged on all of their architecture, and the politicians would have bragged on their accomplishments. You know why? Because everything was great in the cities of the plain of Sodom and Gomorrah in their own eyes. But that's because they were having a blind eye towards the violence, the sin that wreaked havoc on people's lives, especially little children. And God knew differently. And I'll say this again. If you, you don't find out what God is doing in this present world by associating with this present world. Verse 23, the Bible says that Abraham drew near at this point. He drew near. Now remember, he had already bowed before the Lord. In verse 8, he stood before the Lord. And now he draws near to the Lord. And you know this story, but let's look at it very quickly. You know what Abraham does. Most of you do. Verse 23, and Abraham drew near and said, Will thou also destroy the righteous with the wicked? Who's he thinking about? He's thinking about Lot. His nephew and the family. Peradventure, suppose there be 50 righteous within the city. Will thou also destroy and not spare the place for the 50 righteous that are therein? Lord, how about if there's 50 people? Will you spare it for 50? And the Lord says yes. Verse 26, and the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous, righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. Well, verse 29, and Abraham spake in him yet again and said, peradventure, suppose there shall be 40 found there. And God said, I will not do it for the 40's sake. Look at verse 30, and he said, 32, and he said, oh, let me not, Lord, be angry. And I will speak yet this once, peradventure, 10 shall be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for ten's sake. And the Lord went his way as soon as he had left communing with Abraham and Abraham returned unto his place. Ten righteous. Let me ask you something. Did you ever wonder why Abraham didn't go on down to five? Why not go down to five? Well, guess what? I can tell you this. It wouldn't have mattered. If Abraham had said, Lord, how about for five? Remember, there are only four that responded in that crucial hour. And one of the four turned back herself. And you know, it may be that Abraham stopped at ten. Because surely his nephew's family, surely Lot... Lot's wife and daughters and their husbands, surely he influenced all of them to be saved, to be righteous. We also know that if you read the text, there were five cities in the plain. The Bible tells us that two is the number of adequate witness. So if two from each city, just two, two times five is ten righteous people in the valley, then, then that's the least minimum witness for God. Whatever the case, Abraham stopped at 10. The city was utterly destroyed. And the righteous were still delivered. And as Abraham asked in the earlier verse, the judge of all the earth shall do right. Remember that the foundations, the very beginning, that question was posed and God acted, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Yes. The answer is always yes. Pastor, what about people? The judge of all the earth, shall do right. Because guess what? He is right. And here we begin to see the difference, the real difference between Abraham and Lot. And this is a message 
I believe that God has for all of us, for you young people right now, hear this part very carefully. Abraham draws near. The Bible says that for Abraham, he ate and he spoke and he fellowshiped with Christ. The Bible word that God himself uses is communing. When he was done communing with Abraham. But the Lord did not go down to Sodom to fellowship with Lot. Lot's house would not know the privilege of intimate fellowship with the Lord. That's not all. Chapter 19, verse 1 again. And there came two angels to Sodom at even. And Lot sat in the gate of Sodom. Now this is very interesting. Chapter 18, verse 1 says that Abraham sat at the entrance of his tent. This verse says that Lot sat at the gate of Sodom. Do you know and understand that the Holy Spirit is showing us the contrast between these two? Abraham, the pilgrim, is sitting at a tent door. Lot, the worldling, is seated at the gate of the city. And anybody in here who knows the Bible knows that the gate of any ancient city was the seat of power. The gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and so on. So that Lot was one of the city's high officials, Sodom's high officials. So here you have this contrast. Abraham the pilgrim, the tent dweller, Lot the citizen of Sodom, the socialite. And here you have these two guests. They come not to Abram's tent, but to Lot's house. Look at verse 2 of 19. And he said, Behold now, my lords, turn in, I pray you, into your servant's house, and tarry all night, and wash your feet, and you shall rise up early, and go on your ways. And they said, Nay, no. But we will abide in the street all night. And he pressed upon them, Lot begged them greatly, and they turned in unto him and entered into his house, and he made them a feast and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. Let me ask you a question. How would you like for Michael and Gabriel to show up your house, and when you invite them in to stay the night, they say, no, we would rather sit out in the street all night. We don't want to go in your house. I mean, mark it down, folks. There's a big difference between the warm hospitality of Abraham who had an altar and the house of Lot who never had an altar. The word house in verse 22, you know, this is the very first time you find it in all of the Bible. I told you, this is the book of foundations. And it is in contrast to the tent, to the tabernacles of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so the angels say, no, we'd rather stay in the street all night long. Which, of course, brings a look of horror on Lot's face because Lot knows full well what the streets of Sodom were like at nighttime. Matter of fact, if you think about it, he as a legislator helped to enact the laws of Sodom that protected and enabled the perverts and the deviates of that city to practice their vile sins. He knew what would likely happen to those men in the dark streets of Sodom. Chapter 19, look at verse 3. And he pressed upon them greatly, and they turned into him and entered into his house, and he made a feast 
and did bake unleavened bread, and they did eat. But before they lay down, here it is, the men of the city, even the men of Sodom, compassed the house round, both old and young, all the people from every quarter. And they called unto Lot and said unto him, Where are the men which came into thee this night? Bring them out unto us that we may know them. And you know the word know there is a euphemism. Adam knew his wife. If you want to think about how degenerate this city had become, just realize what you just read. The men of the city, the Bible says, the young ones and the old ones from every quarter have come to Lot's house because there was a rumor. And the rumor had spread. And the rumor was that two striking men had come into the city. And of course, in Sodom, what they want to do to these men is legal. What they want to do is acceptable. It's the law. It's even the right to do it. Because, oh, these men, this city, this place is enlightened. And so Lot, the compromiser, Lot, who's mentioned in Hebrews 11 as righteous Lot, the compromising, covetous, worldly, backslidden believer cringes at the pounding on his door. He knows why they're there. He begged the angels to come in. Look at verse 6. And Lot went out at the door unto them and shut the door after him. You picture this, right? You can see it. Shut the door behind him. What do you think he's going to say to them? Verse 7, And I said, I pray you, I beg you, brethren, do not so wickedly. Folks, how far down can a professing believer go that he would call the deviates of Sodom, what's it say in verse 11? Look at it. Brethren. There are preachers in pulpits that do the same thing today. Brethren, don't do this. And then he offers his own daughters to them. Look at verse 8. Behold, now I have two daughters which have not known men. Let me, I pray you, bring them out unto you, and do you to them as is good in your eyes. Only unto these men do nothing, for therefore came they under the shadow of my roof. He was willing to sacrifice his own girls to satisfy their lusts and to prevent whatever harm might come on him and his family by allowing these two men that he knew were otherworldly to be harmed. Pastor, what a vile father, I know. But can I just say something kindly as a pastor? It's not that far removed, at least in this day and age, from fathers in our society who send their girls off to some university and say, have fun, but use protection. Don't cost me anything. You go have a good time in college. You go out there, but here, I'm going to give you some money. Just make sure you're safe and use protection. Do you think that the young men in this society today, these young men with their lusts in America could care less about the soul or the spirit or the well-being of that man's daughter or any man's daughter? But go. 
It seems to me like every week now we hear in the news some 19-year-old college girl is assaulted or worse on a college campus. And of course, these men in Sodom have other ideas. And I want you to notice carefully how righteous, just Lot, by the term of the book of Hebrews, has no influence with these people. And to me, this is a significant lesson. Verse 9, and they said, stand back. And they said again, this one fellow came into sojourn and he will needs be a judge. Now will he deal worse with thee? We will deal worse with thee than with them. And they pressed a sore upon the man, even Lot, and came near to break the door. What were they saying? They said this fellow. They called Lot, who had been there for a long time, who sat at the gate. This guy comes here to our city so that Lot, the worldly, compromising believer, he has absolutely no respect among the people. And why he would expect he would. Lot has no influence with him whatsoever. He thinks that he's a respected judge. He thinks that somehow he can stand between uh, them and his guests. But what do they say? They say, who are you? Who are you to tell us? We're going to do the same thing to you that we plan to do to these men. Can I just say that, this parenthetically, Christians, God people, you can never appease these people. Never. There's never enough ground that you can give where it will make sinners of this sort satisfied. Stand your ground. Verse 10, But the men put forth their hand and pulled Lot into the house to them and shut to the door. And they smote the men that were at the door of the house with blindness, both small and great, young and old, so that they wearied themselves to find the door. Pastor, even blinded? Blindness didn't stop these men in their lust? Yeah, that's true. But you may have noticed that nothing stops people who live in lust. Disease doesn't stop people who live in lust. Jail doesn't stop them. Threat of death, certainly not shame, doesn't stop them. Verse 12, And the men said unto Lot, Hast thou here any besides? Son-in-law, and thy sons, and thy daughters, and whatsoever thou hast in the city, bring them out to this place. For we will destroy this place, because the cry of them is waxing great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. And Lot went out and spake unto his sons-in-law, which married his daughters, and said, Up, get you out of this place, for the Lord will destroy this city. Now look at this line. But he seemed as one that mocked unto his sons-in-law. And when the morning arose, and the angels hastened at Lot, saying, Arise, take thy wife and thy two daughters, which are here, lest thou be consumed in the iniquity of the city. Now follow this. Imagine this picture God's given us here. Lot goes out in the midst of this lustful crowd. They're blinded, and he has to grope around in, in their blindness. He sneaks through them. He finally comes to the house of his sons-in-law. They're actually espoused husbands. And he says to them, hurry, hurry, the God that I serve is going to destroy this city. You know what they said? What do you mean the God you serve? I never noticed you serving a God. He seemed to them as one who mocked. In other words, they said, this old man is nuts. He doesn't serve any God. And so Lot 
with years of backsliding behind him, he has no spiritual currency at all. He has no conviction in his words because he hasn't lived this. And consequently, he has no influence. Staggers his way back home, walks into the door exhausted. Verse 16, and while he lingered, now wait a minute. Remember what happens in the verse before. The angels come in, just look at the verse, and the angels say, take your wife, hasten, hasten, Lot. Take your wife, hurry up, let's do this. Verse 16, and while he lingered. Lingered? Look the word up. I mean, God is going to rain down fire and brimstone, and Lot and his wife and their daughters, the Bible says they lingered. Yes. Because the truth is, they don't want to go. They're dillying and they're dallying and they're dawdling along. In fact, Mrs. Lot, we know what happens to her. Trying to figure out what's jewelry to wear. Daughter's worrying about what to put on and Lot. Maybe trying to get his portfolio together, his cash. All that stuff we talked about. He lingered. And here's what the... Here's, what the angels had to do because he lingered. Verse 16, And while he lingered, the men laid hold upon his hand and upon the hand of his wife and upon the hand of his two daughters. And the Lord being merciful unto him, and they brought him forth and set him without the city. Verse 17, And it came to pass when they brought them forth abroad that he said, Escape for thy life. Look not behind thee, neither stay thou in all the plain. Escape to the mountain, lest thou be consumed. And Lot said unto them, Oh, not so, my Lord. Behold, now thy servant hath found grace in thy sight, and thou hast magnified thy mercy, which thou hast showed unto me in saving my life. And I cannot escape to the mountain, lest some evil take me, and I die. Behold, now this city is near to thee, flee unto, and it is a little one. Oh, let me escape thither. You're taking him out of Jupiter that's going to be destroyed, and they're going to, let me just stay in Dequesta. Is it not a little one, and my soul shall live? Lot says, I can't go in the woods. There's furry animals in the woods. The mountain's spooky. Let me go to the little city. I mean, this man is so backslidden, he would rather be among the beasts of Sodom, the violence and the crime of the city, than to be alone with God in the mountains. That's institutionalized by wickedness. Verse 21, and he said unto him, See, I have accepted thee concerning this thing also, that I will not overthrow the city for the which thou hast spoken. Haste thee, escape thither, for I cannot do anything till thou come thither. Therefore the name of the city was called Zoar. The sun was risen upon the earth when Lot entered into Zoar, and then the Lord rained upon Sodom and Gomorrah brimstone and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the plain and all the inhabitants of the cities and that which grew upon the ground. But his wife looked back, of course she did. His wife looked back from behind him and she became a pillar of salt. See, Pastor, this is just a story. If it's just a story, why did Jesus mention it? Why did Jesus say, remember Lot's wife? Jesus is God. He was here. He knew what happened. 
The Dead Sea is still there full of salt. As a reminder, what a mess this man's life. And what a tragedy, what a loss, what a waste, what a folly. All of his investments, all of his hopes, his dreams, his possessions, all up in smoke. And that is the testimony of every worldly believer. But what about Abraham? Look at verse 27. And Abraham got up early in the morning to the place where he stood before the Lord. And he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain. And behold, and beheld, and lo, the smoke of the country went up as the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass when God destroyed the cities of the plain that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities into which Lot dwelt. What a picture. From way up high, way out in the distance, Abraham could look down and he saw the smoke of that city. Think about that. But it was a city that held no investments for Abraham. Right? It was a city that had no appeal to him. He did not set his tent toward Sodom. Abraham had lost nothing. In fact, he didn't even lose a night's sleep. And he stood there on hallowed ground, away from the smoking ruins of the world beneath him, ever aware that he served a holy God and yet the judge of all the earth who always does what is right. And I want to remind you that had Lot made the right choices, that he too could have been standing on hallowed ground. Instead of being a widower, a fugitive, a refugee from the earth, Lot could have been the friend of God. Think of it this way. Had God sent Lot to Sodom, had God sent him there, then he would have been like Joseph in Egypt, Daniel in Babylon, Esther in Persia. He would have been a stranger there. He would have been an ambassador there. But in Lot's case, his heart was there. Again, you'll remember that he pitched a tent toward Sodom. His heart was there. Compare that, by the way, to Daniel in Babylon, who always opened his window toward Jerusalem. Lot's tent revealed his heart, just as Abraham's tent revealed the direction of his heart. And herein, beloved, you have a perfect illustration of what is and what is not the right relationship of a Christian to this world. You see, Abraham was definitely in the world. There's no doubt about it. Successful businessman, respected warrior and leader, well-traveled, very astute concerning the world that he was in. But while he was in the world, his testimony was he was never of the world. And it is a reminder that Every believer who is a child of God by faith, he's the father of the faithful, has a very specific critical relationship to this world. We have a relationship to the world in which we are living and know that relationship does not include going out of the world. It doesn't mean that we're supposed to sequester ourselves like the Amish or the Benedictine monks. Monasteries, which are designed for celibacy and total solitude, those are never part of God's plan. I mean, being sequestered, I'll say this, being sequestered on some mountain villa 
chanting, writing poetry, making yogurt and cheese. Sounds great to me. Right? Who wouldn't want that? By the way, what do you call a sleepwalking nun? A roaming Catholic. Anyway, I don't know what got me up there. But that's not, God did not call his people to go up on some mountain and eat herbs and wait for him to come. I'll prove that. Jesus prayed in John 17 for us. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. Paul says that we're to be the sons of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Not, quote, here's Paul, not altogether separated, for then ye must needs be out of the world. God doesn't want us to live out of the world, to put the light under a bushel. He wants to be in the world but not of the world. And guess what? That's possible. It's entirely possible. We have example after example after example where it's possible. I'm going to close with it. Think about Abraham for one moment. The friend of God, the father of the faithful, the central patriarch of Judaism, Islam, and Christianity. Imagine that. Abraham is the only type of God the Father in the Old Testament. And yet, he wrote no book He gave no prophecies. He composed no psalms. He wrote no laws that we have. He performed no miracles. He was not, as it were, a prophet or a priest. He was not a pastor. He wasn't even technically a Jew. And yet his singular life illustrates the life, the life that makes a difference in the world. How? by not being of the world. By living your life by faith in this book and in the God of this book and not being of the world. This is exactly what God has called you and me to do. And may God help us do it. And God's people said, Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Lord, thank you that as we continue to learn about your plan of redemption and your will and your working in the world, that there is There is a glorious pattern that we already know, Father, that this is leading somewhere and has been leading somewhere and continues to. And I just ask, Father, that as your people in this place at this time, that you have brought us into the kingdom for such a time as this, may we be faithful. May we be in this world to make a difference, but never of this world. And may we be like Abraham and not Lot. We'll praise you for it in Jesus' precious name. Amen.